This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, more Australians could get the right to ask about a partner's criminal history, but will the scheme reduce domestic violence? Also, a 72-year-old man suspected of killing 10 people in a Los Angeles shooting rampage is found dead. We'll go to our US correspondent. And a veteran of Indigenous Affairs policy warning that withholding key details of the voice to Parliament could lead to the failure of the referendum. The government is saying that will be available before we vote in the referendum later in the year. Well, by then, perhaps there'll be too much damage done. That's what worries me. First tonight, should Australians be able to find out from the police if their partner has a history of violence? The New South Wales government is vowing to bring in such a scheme if it's re-elected in March, but those working in the sector aren't convinced it'll help prevent domestic violence. The proposal is based on a scheme in the UK and that's already been trialled in some parts of Australia. One expert says there's little evidence it'll help address the crisis. Here's Gavin Coote. As rates of domestic violence continue to rise in New South Wales, Premier Dominic Perrottet wants people to be able to check whether their partner has a history of violence. This is all about ensuring that women across New South Wales are safe. We know with changing technology, it's incredibly important uh, that women are safe and secure and have access to the information they need uh, to ensure that the relationship that they are in uh, is safe. The Right to Ask scheme was previously trialled across four parts of the state and allowed people to apply to the police station for information about their partner. Now the New South Wales Coalition wants to extend it statewide if it's elected and allow people to lodge an application online or over the phone. If this new scheme uh, saves just one life, it will be worth it. Jen Armstrong wishes such a scheme was available when she was younger. The mother of two from southern Sydney was physically abused by her then-husband while she was pregnant and had no idea of his violent past. The abuse from my ex-husband continued for many, many years. After our separation, he subsequently moved back to the UK. Subsequently, years again later, I'd found out many things that he had done previously. And um, yeah, if I'd known that before, it would have been great. Potentially that could have changed my mind at the outset of our relationship. Having a source of information, which is obviously vetted and checked, would be just so critical to informing people's um, relationship choices or assisting them too. So that I guess they're going in eyes wide open, so to speak, and not going in and finding out these things later down the track when it may be too late for them. The scheme is based on Clare's law in the United Kingdom, which was set up following the 2009 murder of Clare Wood by a former partner who had prior assault convictions. A similar program is in place across South Australia, but not everyone agrees about its effectiveness. Professor Kate Fitzgibbon is the director of the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre, who thinks the New South Wales government's proposal has come out of left field. 
It's an interesting announcement. I think one that has caught many people within the sector by surprise as New South Wales piloted the domestic violence disclosure scheme a few years back. And given how resource intensive it was, ultimately it was disbanded and there's been no significant evidence in the meantime that it has positive impacts on women's safety. So the announcement today has come somewhat out of the blue. Kate Fitzgibbon has studied the effectiveness of Claire's Law in the UK along with other disclosure systems and worries about the possible unintended consequences. One of the key challenges that we have with that is the data sets that we keep. The police data, court data around domestic violence only captures a very small number of people who use violence. So the concern with schemes such as this is whether it does give a realistic viewpoint to a victim survivor of whether they are at risk of violence from that perpetrator or whether it may be putting them into a false sense of safety. Is that because many domestic violence perpetrators don't have a conviction of violence? Absolutely. So many perpetrators we know will be unknown to the system, to police and courts, and this is because all forms of violence against women are heavily underreported. But we also know that charges, convictions are rare as well, so the number gets smaller at each point of the system. Also within Australia, we have the challenge that we are in a state and territory-based system. We know that perpetrators move states and territories. Late last year, New South Wales became the first state to create a standalone offence of coercive control. And Kate Fitzgibbon wants the government to focus its resources on the implementation of those laws. Others in the sector are cautiously hoping the Right to Ask scheme will form part of a broader suite of measures to tackle the problem. Tara Hunter is the Director of Clinical and Client Services with Full Stop Australia. There's not going to be any magic solution, so this is part of a number of interventions. It also needs to be accompanied with other actions um, and other resourcing that needs to go into the sector really urgently. The New South Wales government says it'll work closely with those in the sector as part of the design of the proposed disclosure scheme. Gavin Cooch reporting. And if you're in an abusive situation or you know someone who is, please call 1800 RESPECT. That's 1800 737 732. If it's an emergency, call triple zero. Investigators in Los Angeles are trying to figure out what motivated the gunman who carried out a mass shooting that left 10 people dead during Chinese New Year celebrations. After a frantic manhunt, the body of the 72-year-old man, who police believe is the offender, was eventually found in a white van. County Sheriff Robert G. Luna explains what happened next. When officers exited their patrol vehicle to contact the occupant, they heard one gunshot coming from within the van. Officers retreated and requested several tactical teams. At 12.52 p.m., our sheriff's uh, SWAT team approached and cleared the van and determined the suspect sustained a self-inflicted gunshot wound and was pronounced dead at the scene. So the suspect is dead, as we heard then, apparently by suicide. The shooting happened at a ballroom dance hall, shattering the festive spirit of the New Year celebrations. Congresswoman Judy Chu represents the area. I cannot believe it. I'm stunned and shocked that this could happen here in our peaceful community. Something has to be done. 
we have to stop uh, having the availability of these assault weapons uh, on the streets so that it's so easy for somebody to just walk into an establishment and shoot people and ruin their lives. For more on this shooting, I spoke with our North America correspondent, Carrington Clark, who's at Monterey Park in LA's east. Carrington, what do we know about how this shooting unfolded? Well, it's a sequence of three events that we now know were connected, according to police. At about 10.20pm last night, this is Lunar New Year being celebrated in Los Angeles, in Monterey Park, which is really one of the central suburbs for the Asian American community here in Los Angeles. There were lots of people on the street, but there was also quite a crowd at this particular ballroom dance academy. At around 10.20, a man had entered this facility, entered this room. He's killed 10 people, uh, as well as injuring 10 others. Now, the police say that suspect, the now deceased, then moved to a second location. At that location, the gun appears to have been wrestled off him by a couple of patrons. The manhunt has started. There's been a white van identified as being at the scene of the initial shooting. Uh, The police have then, about 12 hours later, have spotted this particular van. And this is about 30 kilometres from the original place. A SWAT team eventually moves to the van after uh, gunshots are heard. And police say that at that point, the deceased had killed himself. He's died from a a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Well, on motive, have the investigators had much to say yet about what they know about the suspected gunman and, and the sort of weapons he had? So the man who died is a 72-year-old Hugh Can Tran. He is from the Los Angeles area, though quite far from actually where the attack took place. The motive is the major question that is left unanswered at this point. Obviously, because this was a heavily Asian-American community, because this was Lunar New Year, such an important holiday, there were many people who were concerned that this might be evidence of an Asian hate crime because there has been such a stark rise in people reporting violent attacks and, and assaults towards Asian Americans. Police are saying they are still investigating. The deceased is of Asian extraction, uh, but that doesn't necessarily prove it one way or, or the other. There's also been some speculation about domestic violence, but it's, it's very important to point out at this point, the police say they're still investigating. On the matter of guns, it, it appears that the gun that was wrestled from him at the second location where he wasn't able to discharge that firearm is a magazine-fed semi-automatic assault pistol which the with an extended magazine attached. So the police are saying that that is illegal in California, but that question of motive, that's really the core question that hopefully will be answered in coming days. And this shooting again raises the issue of gun control in the United States. Is the debate over that intensifying once again? I mean, I think it's fair to say the debate always heats up, obviously, after these horrific attacks, but it's very hard to see how the the dial will be moved on this issue. There are those people who are very strident in their view that uh, the Second Amendment is sacrosanct and should not be touched. And there are people on the other side who believe that gun reform has to happen in America. We wait to see how it plays out. Joe Biden, the president, has been very clear that he does want gun reform. But whether or not this event is actually going to have a marked political impact, I think, remains to be seen.
The ABC's North America correspondent, Carrington Clark. Back in Australia now, and one of the country's most experienced public servants is urging the federal government to give voters more information on the proposed voice to parliament. But Bob Beadman, who worked on Indigenous affairs policy for many years, says the government shouldn't allow itself to get boxed into a corner by the opposition's calls for details. Jane Barden reports. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, is again needling the Prime Minister for detail on what the voice to Parliament would be. I think there are a lot of Indigenous leaders really who are shaking their head in bewilderment at the Prime Minister at the moment because he won't provide the detail. The opposition's attack is becoming more pointed as coalition MPs who've declared broad support for the voice, like Julian Leeser, draw back also demanding detail. They should set up some processes to deal with the amendment uh, and the structure of the national body. Anthony Albanese has promised some detail about the planned voice body, but he's refusing to provide much. It won't be a funding body. It won't administer programs. It will be elected or appointed by Indigenous people themselves. It won't have a right of veto. It will be an advisory body only. Veteran former public servant Bob Beadman has been acting Deputy Secretary of the Federal Aboriginal Affairs Department and has led NT government policy making and reporting on remote Indigenous service delivery in several lead roles. He was also the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission's Policy General Manager. Mr Beadman thinks the government should provide some information about its planned voice, but is labelling the opposition's demands irresponsible. I think the leader of the opposition is now winning some mileage being able to criticise a total dearth in information about the architecture of such a body. But the government is saying that will be available before we vote in the referendum later in the year. Well, by then, perhaps there'll be too much damage done. That's what worries me. What do you think the wisest political strategy on this would be for the government? Well, I think they can think out loud, for example, about which aspects of the Calibre length and report appeal to them, what's likely to find its way into a government model. Would it be advisable for them, though, still to take the position that these are options and, you know, there might even be a few different options Definitely. And uh, remembering always that in the end, the parliament is going to make those final decisions. Mr Beatman says the voice body will be nothing like ATSIC, which administered taxpayer funds through nationally and regionally elected bodies. ATSIC was dissolved by the Howard government in 2005 after allegations of financial mismanagement against its elected officials. It won't have funds. The administration of funds will continue as of now by the agencies of government and the voice is not part of that. It's a provision of advice to government only. Do you think the disbanding of ATSEC was a mistake? Oh, I do. It was uh, too strong an experiment and too big an investment to throw out in that fashion. Certainly there were problems with that leadership, but there were means to address that by way of legislative reform and that wasn't attempted. Peter Dutton is right that some Indigenous leaders around the country want more detail before voting. May Roses is the chair of the Worli Wurlinjang Aboriginal Health Service and a traditional owner in the NT regional town of Catherine. In general, I support that we have First Nation voice, but we need clarity around how this is going to be conducted you know, who will have the potential to be able to nominate and be selected and ensuring that Northern Territory have the voice to represent our individual needs as well. 
the government is arguing at this point that Australians should vote on the principle of having a voice to Parliament and that they'll provide the detail afterwards. What do you think of that? Well, I think we need the details now so we we have a clear understanding of where we all sit and what we need to do to ensure we we elect our voice to um, articulate what it is that we need to be looking at to really close the gap. One of the key architects of The Voice, Cape York leader Noel Pearson, is warning of dire consequences for reconciliation in Australia if the referendum fails. What is at stake is the chance for reconciliation. And if this referendum is kiboshed through game playing, we will lose the opportunity, I think, forever. That's Cape York Aboriginal leader Noel Pearson ending Jane Barden's report. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, schools move to block access to an AI tool amid fears students could use it to cheat. It sends a message that somehow these tools are bad or wrong or shouldn't be used. One of the things we've got to be careful about is trying to set rules that we can't or don't want to enforce. Police say the chances of finding a missing person who's been gone for six months are extremely slim. For one Tasmanian family, it's been six years since their brother was last seen, but now they have answers thanks to a team of independent divers. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Diver Dan searches the watery depths, hoping to help families whose loved ones have gone missing. A video uploaded to his YouTube channel, Down Under Dan Diving, reveals a recent success. Bill McIntosh, who was helping with the search, speaks about the find. He was last seen going to get breakfast and with his fishing rods, and we found him here. An underwater search in the River Derwent north of Hobart using sonar technology this week has uncovered a submerged vehicle and a body inside. The car was registered to Dale Nicholson, a 61-year-old man who has been missing since 2016. Police have since removed the vehicle but are yet to formally identify the remains. He was found just around the corner from his home. The find provides answers to Mr Nicholson's family, who said in a statement they're glad to have closure and to be able to lay him to rest. We're just glad to be able to bring closure to the family. Uh, It's a sense of relief for the four sisters. Craig Farrell is a state Labor MP who has long represented the new Norfolk community where the body was found. It was um, very difficult just... uh, not knowing what had happened and and when somebody just disappears like that um, I I think uh, people don't get any rest until there is that knowledge of what exactly happened. Sarah Wayland is a social work lecturer focusing on trauma and loss at the University of New England. There's over 50,000 people who get reported missing in Australia every year. Um, But only a very small percentage of those become long-term missing people, so people missing longer than six months. And what actually happens for those families, and I think there's almost 3,000 of them currently in Australia, is that what they're attempting to do is make sure that they haven't left any stone unturned. 
She says while families will have police connections, it's not uncommon for them to look elsewhere to solve their missing person case. Most families of long-term missing will seek out some independent advice, whether that be through connecting with a psychic, connecting with a private investigator, speaking to private search and rescue places. What is it like for those families who don't have answers about where their loved one might be? Look, I think the the term that we use internationally is that the loss that they experience is called an ambiguous loss. But I think that's almost too kind of vanilla a term for what families go through because what they're going through is this unending torture. But for many families, finding a long-term missing person isn't the end of the pain. Even when a body is found years later, it's not like they got a jump start on the grieving process. They've been living through this unresolved loss for all of this time. And then when once the body is found, then a different type of grief is experienced, a grief that's final. Sarah Wayland from the University of New England, Alexandra Humphreys with that report. The robo-debt Royal Commission hearings have resumed today with more disturbing evidence from Australians who were pursued for debts they didn't owe. Rosemary Gay was the first witness. She was hit with an automated debt notice for tens of thousands of dollars. I knew it couldn't be possible. However, it just turned my life upside down and um, created an enormous emotional and mental strain on me. It was a very dark period of time for me and one that's difficult to even relive. It had a significant effect on me because um, my earnings were very little. All I could see was that I may be faced with selling my home and losing everything that I had worked for. Rick Morton is a senior reporter for the Saturday paper and is covering the Royal Commission hearings. Yeah, Rosemary Gay, I mean, she's a remarkable woman. She's 70, uh, 76 now, and she was still working up until her early 70s because she needed to. She had um, pretty poor physical health, but she was able to work two days a week um, and she was getting the age pension um, as well. And that was the only way she could afford to survive. And then all of, all of a sudden in 2000 and, uh, oh God, 14 or 16, I think, they come to her and say, you owe us $64,000, $64,000. and you know, here's this poor woman who's been working as a clerical administrator, um, a law clerk, a records keeper, uh, an accounts keeper for all these different businesses, including law firms, accounting firms and logistics, being told that she hasn't been reporting her income correctly um, to Centrelink, which in her head she'd been doing the entire time. And now she's been told that she owed $64,000 and she was a wreck. She was a complete wreck. And it, if it wasn't for her daughter helping her at that point saying, you've got to call them and figure out what's going on. And so she at least tries to query what's happening. But then Centrelink comes back and says, oh, actually, sorry, we got that wrong. You owe us 6600 and something dollars. And again, none of this makes any sense to, to Rosemary Gay. And before any of this is settled or the disputes are heard fully, they start taking, reducing the amount of her age pension, which is pretty finely calibrated for anybody living on the, on the breadline. Did she go into much detail about the effect it had on her, her mental health and I suppose her day-to-day life? Yeah, I mean, she said you never really recover from it. I mean... Something that hasn't come up heaps in this Royal Commission is because we're looking at the legality of it, but she said it was immoral as well. It's unethical. You know, she believed that, you know, nobody necessarily trusts their government fully, but you at least think that they're not acting maliciously. 
And she believed that if they said they had a debt, then it was probably, you know, they had a reason to say that. But she knew in her heart of hearts that, you know, it could never have been $64,000 and something weird was going on, which is a, a strange place to put someone who's been working all their lives. And suddenly they're making threats that they're going to reduce the pension. You might not be able to keep the place. And it's just thoroughly, I think she said that at the time, her physical and mental health suffered so seriously that she just wasn't in a, in a good place at all. And Rick, who else has given evidence today? Yeah, we've also heard from Ricky Ricky Ake, who, in a similar position, he's now 61, I think, and he was living in very remote Victoria towards the South Australia border. Uh, and he was just trying to, you know, do his own thing. He was trying to, to work. He was picking up jobs in farming and truck driving. And then because these were seasonal and his income bounced around, um, he was also went through periods of unemployment where he was, you know, on the new start allowance, which is now a job seeker. And lo and behold, eventually Centrelink comes knocking and says, you us, owe us, you know, more than $5,000. And he can't afford a cent to go missing. Now, the particularly galling thing about Ricky Ake's case is that there were transcripts read out from phone calls when he did get a hold of Centrelink and they were advising him what to do. And the Centrelink call operators told him, look, if you can go and get your bank statements, it'll be more accurate than what we've given you in terms of we've just come up with a debt number and you can't prove it. But if you can go and get payslips or bank statements, it'll be more accurate and we'd prefer that for you. Now, this, by the way, is something that the government has the power to do themselves and used to do under the old system as a last resort. They would use their powers to compel employers and banks to hand over information to see what a person has been earning. Except they made Ricky Ake do it. Now, Ricky Ake tried to do that with his payslips and he couldn't get them all. So then he tried to go to the bank. And the bank said, yeah, you can have your bank statements. It's $2 a page, which will cost you over $100. And he couldn't afford it. And this is a perfect case study of what the government was doing in terms of reversing the onus of proof and then also outsourcing its traditional role of fact finder to the people who were on welfare for a reason. And it was because they didn't have much. Rick Morton from the Saturday paper. Well, when children head back to the classroom soon, teachers will be facing a new way of cheating. An artificial intelligence-powered chatbot has demonstrated it can be used in a range of ways with some pretty convincing results. It's prompted at least two states to ban access to the tool in public schools. Isabel Masali has more. At Kath Ellis's school, there was one invention that made teachers panic. I remember being in maths class when I was a little calf and having, you know, calculators were quite new and having the teacher say, you know, you're going to have to learn how to do this because you're not going to have a pocket calculator in your pocket. And I'm like, I do now. She's now a researcher of academic integrity at the University of New South Wales and calculators are far from her mind. Today we're talking about ChatGPT, a chatbot that's been developed by the American artificial intelligence company, OpenAI. While it can generate most things you ask it to, Professor Ellis says we should think twice about banning it in classrooms. One of the things we've got to be careful about is trying to set rules that we can't or don't want to enforce. But the other reason why we might want to think twice about banning it is because it sends a message that somehow these tools are bad or wrong or shouldn't be used. And that's a bit of a blanket statement because cheating is contextual. 
But she also notes that ChatGPT's own terms and conditions bans its use for under-18s. And that's one of the reasons the New South Wales Department of Education has decided to restrict its access on student devices and their own network. In a statement, the department said the ban will take place while it reviews how to safely and appropriately use this emerging technology in the classroom. The Queensland Department of Education will do the same, and other states are considering how it'll approach the technology. Dr Vidimir Kovanovic is a senior lecturer in learning analytics at the University of South Australia. He argues the ban won't work and is more of a symbolic gesture. Instead, he thinks our approach to schoolwork needs to change. If we make assessments more uh, authentic and linked to students themselves, then it will be a different thing. For example, rather than giving the assignment, you know, of write a summary of, you know, opposing views on uh, war and peace, you can give the student a task, summarize the classroom discussion that we had today, and what are your thoughts about that? So, well, the tool in that case cannot really do that for you because he wasn't there in the classroom. Associate Professor Julia Powles is with the University of Western Australia, where she researches how artificial intelligence can impact our lives. She says there's no doubt ChatGPT has caused a stir in recent weeks. A conversation we're not having at all is how legitimate are these is this tool as a publicly available tool based on, I would say, at, at its highest theft of people's work. Some of the other debates are about the labour it requires to ensure that this is a, a tool that delivers results that are not inappropriate to witness, whether that's through racism, sexism, other abusive content. And then there are environmental conversations. When it comes to banning it in schools, she backs that response. She believes it's a natural extension of rules around the use of Wikipedia and other platforms. But she says there are important conversations to have with the generation that'll increasingly face artificial intelligence. Young people are very adept in thinking through the compromises of technology and whether it is a learning process to get a you know, workman like human prose from a from a machine or whether that's a process that shortcuts too much of what learning is about. It's really an opportunity for young people to lead the conversation in many ways about how technology can give us some shortcuts but what we don't want to be shortcut. Associate Professor Julia Powles from the University of Western Australia, Isabel Masali with that report. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Do head to the PM webpage for all our interviews and reports to share. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As we embark on 2023, many of us will be thinking about our finances and whether this year will be any easier than last year. Today, with the possibility of a global recession still very much on the cards, we look at how Australia might fare. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.